Complicated Thoughts presented by Prescouter. We focus on big ideas in life science. I'm Jeremy Schmier, and with me is Dr. Ryan LaRanger. While the idea of telehealth or telemedicine isn't exactly a new one, we've certainly seen its prevalence and popularity increase dramatically during the pandemic. Can video conferencing replace the need to go to the doctor? Is the quality of care up to snuff? There are a lot of implications about the presence of telehealth and remote doctor-patient relationships. So Ryan, maybe you can start off by giving us your initial thoughts on where you feel telemedicine fits in within the continuum of care. So it's interesting, actually. Um, when I think of telemedicine in the continuum of care, it fits a couple of very important niches. And But first of all, I should say not all, not all telemedicine is created equal. Right. We can actually think of telemedicine as enabling relationships that allow care to occur. And there are a couple of different relationships that it's enabling. Right. On the one hand, the most obvious one is between a patient and their doctor. Right. And that's a very, very important one. But we also have to keep in mind that uh, telemedicine also allows for surgeons or for image analysis to be done by professionals, not say locally at a given hospital, but somewhere else. So it can also connect service providers with the point of care, allowing for greater access to, um, let's say, test types and overall expertise. So before I go on, uh, does that make sense? And do you see sort of why I made that clarification? Yeah. So it's, it's not just about visiting your doctor using video conferencing or a phone call, but there's a whole other suite of services that happen remotely. So maybe you can expand on that and, and some of the different technology platforms too. Yeah. It's like your doctor, for instance, saying, Hey, I've got this MRI. Let's send it to uh, someone who's let's say far away and they'll image the, they'll let's say, interpret the MRI and then get the results back. And so, then they can deliver them to the patient. So there's um, an element of, of almost like contracting out some of the work where some of these um, interpreters or, or healthcare professionals may not actually be patient facing. Is that what you're oh, saying? Exactly. Yes. It, it's the idea of telemedicine is if you think about it, the delivery of care is an incredibly complicated process, right? It's uh, just by way of example, during neurosurgery, something that's been mandated by a number of payers is that if one person is doing surgery, you need to have a second surgeon observing the surgery to make sure everything is going okay and calling out issues as they occur for the insurance company, right? Now, having this happen in person is a logistical nightmare. So what a number of groups have been doing is they've been having remote monitoring performed by surgeons who are sitting somewhere else and who are able to watch the uh, feed basically of the surgery take place and call out issues as they arise. And this is actually very big business, but I would classify that also as telemedicine. Or, you know, if you have a, again, it's, we're just talking about brain surgery because it is so technically complicated. If you had an incredibly skilled brain surgeon, uh, the advent of some of the surgical robots that we've talked about before, where you're starting to get the latency down to the level where they can uh, do this remotely, um, the dream would be having that 
surgeon whose time is you don't want them spending time on a plane obviously right that's time they could be saving lives uh having them being able to do it remote dramatically increases access to healthcare for people even if they're not near one of these superstar hospitals that that makes a lot of sense so there's a streamlining element and an access where where surgeons of all types are not flying across the world to deliver a, a life-altering surgery to somebody who, who maybe just can't reach it just for whatever reason. Um, can you talk a little bit more about some of those specific technology platforms? How does it actually happen where, where things can be shared, you know, maybe from a, a data perspective, a privacy perspective, a little bit more about the, like how this actually happens? So the interesting thing about this from our perspective is that many of the technologies in this space are honestly pretty straightforward and similar to what you see when you open up almost any website, right? Uh, what I was talking about before, just by way of example, uh, that visualization of neurosurgery is a little more than a webcam. <laughs> Right? right they're just right. observing the process and then writing down what they see in a word processor uh, now obviously there are cases where the technology is more involved but let's start baseline these connectivity elements generally speaking they are um pretty straightforward communication platforms that connect these people in different stages of the work uh, for instance, if you're sending an image of, say, an MRI or an EKG or something to be interpreted by someone else, that is an image which can be sent. Now, there are some platforms where uh, they are enclosed, right? So it's an image sharing thing, but you're not sending it through Google. You're sending it through an enclosed system with a big security fence around it, right? And so there are a couple of these. They talk with electronic medical records. And obviously this is very important because especially in the US, HIPAA violations or breaching of a person's data is ridiculously expensive. If Especially if you have a breach where you lose hundreds of cases, if you're being fined thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars per HIPAA violation, uh, that can turn into an absolutely catastrophic fine. So in terms of the technology on these more basic elements, cybersecurity is a huge, huge, huge part of it, sometimes to the detriment of the usability of the service. Um, before I go on to some of the more sophisticated technological enablers, does that make sense in terms of networks and security? Yeah, pretty straightforward. It sounds like it's there are some basic forms of this and some more advanced forms, depending on what's actually being shared or done. So please continue. Right, exactly. Now, the other part of it and where it gets a little bit more interesting is in the matchmaking services. So cases where uh, you don't necessarily have a primary care physician and you want to use some of these telemedicine services to connect with a doctor or a nurse practitioner. And those are very interesting. And then the other part of it is uh, I believe we had a conversation about wearables recently, but we'll bring it up briefly. Uh, wearables and changing the kind of data that your healthcare provider can have access to. So first of all, there are a couple of innovative groups which are trying to do the equivalent of 
Uber for doctors, right? Where it's just working under the assumption you don't have a primary care physician and a, a non-trivial number of Americans don't have a family physician they go to. And part of why is probably because of, um, well, a range of issues and we can talk about perceived immortality later. But um, so there's this segment of the patient population where you can say, uh, if you don't have a primary care provider, you can work with us and you'll have an online primary care provider and it acts as a matchmaking service. Um, it provides things like um, EMR being able to enter data from, you know, sort of entry forms, but also from wearables. And it all gets sent to the doctor who is stationed somewhere. And then they meet with you by what's the equivalent of a Zoom call. <laughs> they give you advice. And then they have the ability to refer you to an in-person doctor if you need it. But again, all of that sort of technologically, pretty straightforward. The only thing I want to get to quickly also is the idea of wearables, your iPhone, your Fitbit. Uh, these are pretty standard, though very exciting, technologies which can provide pretty high resolution health data to a uh, physician. At this stage, unless you're talking about pretty specific sensors, a great deal, more of the innovation has been on the data interpretation side. In other words, how do I take this measure done by an iPhone and turn it into uh, a prediction on things like diabetes, heart attack, this sort of business, versus how do I make a sensor which is small, lots of people will wear, and will compete with an iPhone or a Fitbit? Does so, that all make sense? Yeah. So you've given a lot of perspectives here, and I think the matchmaking um, service is an interesting one. But what I'm wondering is, you know, can you speak to the adoption both from a few perspectives, actually, the hospital side? you know, just general, you know, the large hospital system, but then also the physician adoption and then the patient adoption. What are the limitations for, for people turning to this as, as the first step for healthcare? And then also from the reimbursement side and some of the regulatory barriers for hospital providers or healthcare professionals to offer this? Oh, what a question. Um, I have to give you two slightly different answers please <laughs> because covid has really changed things and we're still sort of seeing how all of that settles out right um before covid there was a great deal of institutional resistance to telemedicine uh especially some of these telemedicine tools because hospitals in particular but doctors more generally are really overworked and uh, health administrative staff are generally also spread thin and they already have been having to deal with electronic medical record integration into their systems and a number of these other record keeping systems which are old but secure and that's part of why they use them, right? Uh, Epic and so on. And so asking these people to engage with, you know, some upstart, startup that wants to be uber for doctors getting them to into your hospital to make a deals and from the perspective of a startup that's a nightmare from hell 
right? It's that's it's very, very difficult because these hospitals are already so organizationally overtaxed and so risk averse that it's hard to convince them to work with you, right? So uh, some groups have been getting around this by taking more of the direct to consumer model where it's just will be your doctor, right? So traditionally speaking, I would characterize the healthcare space as a ship, which is very, very large and slow to turn, but moving in that direction because ultimately uh, adoption of these trends will save costs. COVID has dramatically increased, almost something on the order of 100%, depending on who you look at and who you're surveying, interest in and demand for telemedicine services, right? It has dramatically increased that demand. And now hospitals, uh, healthcare providers, governments are getting very interested in uh, smoothing some of those regulatory hurdles and making it easier for these technologies to get penetration in what is an absolutely enormous market. Uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but um, I mean, actually just very recently, Medicare payment requirements for um, telehealth services, uh, just as part of the coronavirus package, uh, the Medicare payments, some of those barriers were waived almost immediately uh, when that crisis started getting really intense. So um, the way I would characterize it briefly is there was a great deal of institution, there was a moderate amount of institutional resistance recently that is starting to go down in the face of demand, not only from customers, but also from uh, regulatory groups and hospitals. Does that generally track? I think that's a great way to, to sum it up. And as I'm listening, I'm thinking there is infrastructure for this in terms of technology and, and perhaps some of the ways to avoid the hurdles, um, perhaps from regulatory or reimbursement. And there is a growing demand um, for this and a willingness to try it. And so it sounds like while it is a very large ship, it is indeed heading in a direction where this could become you know, more prevalent and more, more normal versus where it was years ago. Definitely. Now, there's just one more thing that I want to add, Please. which I think is very important because yes. we've spent a lot of time talking about, oh, you know, there's not that much to do in the space uh, in terms <laughs> of innovation and so on. And uh, but that's not entirely correct. So this trend, which is almost definitely going to march forward, is causing a, I will say, glut of varied data types coming to healthcare providers who are not necessarily extremely well-trained in how to deal with all of this new data, uh -huh, right. certainly do not have tools to turn that data rapidly into insights and improvements of care. So right? there's a quality so, assurance mechanism that could be missing from some of this. Quality assurance in part, but the main thing I would argue is interpretation. Mm. So getting to a point where physicians can, in a way that doesn't cost them a lot of time, it, the intuitive display of results, interpretation, meaning from all these streams of data is an enormous problem because we're talking about very complicated data. But if you can overcome it, 
you can, in my opinion, uh, and the opinion of others as well, significantly increase the value of care. And I think that's a nut no one has cracked yet. It doesn't seem like there's a very clear solution for that, aside from essentially recruiting and and you know having better doctors more or less. Uh, well, so the main <laughs> the main direction there are groups trying to do this, mm-hmm. and the main approach they're taking is develop a really really robust artificial intelligence platform, and have it display results to a clinician or make a clinical decision support tool and have that help out a clinician. The problem is making a tool which can not only provide really good results or really uh, correct results and be something that doctors want to use is hard. But in my opinion, uh, interpretation of these continuous variable data sets where everything is dependent not only on, you know, uh, patient specific factors, but population specific factors. That's a tough uh, hurdle to overcome, but the people who solve it are going to do pretty well. The, they'll probably do just fine. And so that's this, the hope. This is, a, this is an evolving topic, like most of the things that, that we're discussing here. So thanks for providing your perspective. And we'll, we'll kind of conclude for today and hope that our listeners enjoyed the conversation. Obviously, subscribe to us via Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, you can join us again next week where we're going to discuss the impact of early diagnostics. So until then, thank you for listening.